Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, sprouting malicious accusations. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And now from 1 Peter chapter 4, 1 to 11. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, Love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. 
To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Father, fill us with all joy and hope in believing by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me begin with a prayer from St. Augustine from the 4th century AD. Augustine didn't become a Christian until he was 31, which is a pretty decent age in the 4th century AD. Before then, he'd pursued a libertine lifestyle, indulging in all the worldly pleasures, including various intellectual pursuits. After becoming a Christian, he wrote this prayer to God, whom he addresses as, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Here it goes. Too late have I loved you. And I was, I was 31. Too late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new. Too late have I loved you. Behold, you were within me while I was outside. It was there that I sought you in the pleasures. And a deformed creature rushed headlong upon these things of beauty which you, O God, have made. Augustine chose an alternative to Christian hopes, that is, pleasure, but he found his way home, and not too late, because it's never too late. Each week in this series called Alternatives to Christian Hope and Their Antidotes, we're addressing a reality, namely that there are serious temptations for all of us to abandon divine Christian hope for an alternative, to go back to Egypt. Our aim in the series is to provide an antidote to the alternative hopes and to point you back to the promised land, to resurrection hope, which is universal, comprehensive, decisive, substantial, and satisfying. This week, beauty and pleasure as an alternative. You'll see on your outline that I want to begin by asking, what is Christian hope? This is the longer section of my sermon to adjust your expectations and that I want to briefly explore today's alternative, because it'll be obvious, suggest a trap for young players, and thirdly, offer an antidote to the alternative as an alternative to Christian hope. So firstly, what is Christian hope? Those who've been following the, the series will have noticed a pattern that I've asked the same question every week, what is Christian hope? But I've provided a different answer with reference to the alternative. And I can do this because there are many true ways to speak about Christian hope. They all have to do with God's redemptive plans. They've all got to do with resurrection hope. They all change how we live now. So what is Christian hope with respect to beauty and pleasure? It is to see the face of the Lord. That's what we're looking for, the face of the Lord. That's who we are looking for. This is our hope, to see his face. And surprise, like we sung a moment ago, it comes ultimately at his appearing. Jerry Cole said to me on the way out, he says, my uncle, who's 103, and Jerry was crying as he was saying it, 
his uncle who's 103 is saying, I want to see Christ's face. I'm ready to see Christ's face. Jerry was crying about his uncle. It is what we can't do in sin, in unredeemed flesh. This is why we all need salvation. You can't just say, I'm a good person. In a famous moment in the burning bush, or as I call it, the not burning bush, Moses laments that Israel can't move forward without the presence of God. And God says to Moses, you you cannot see my face. You cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And yet, to see his face is indeed our hope. Psalm 67, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all the nations. And here we are among the nations. In fact, we're at the ends of the earth where you sit. Maybe it's the islands. To have faith, then, is not just to know about God, but rather to seek his face. Psalm 105, look to the Lord and his strength, seek his face always. Or 2 Chronicles 7, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I'll forgive their sins. So it's important. How do we do it? And what does this have to do with beauty and pleasure? I want to turn now to Psalm 27 which you have open. I hope you do. Look at verse 4, if you do, or listen to this. David says in verse 4 of Psalm 27, one thing I ask from the Lord, this this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord, to seek him in his temple. Now, this has Old Testament context, but note that David wants to gaze upon the beauty, the beauty of the Lord. God then is beautiful. He is, O beauty, so ancient and so fresh. To not see him then is horrible. It is, you might say, the definition of ugly. Verse 8, my heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, will I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger, which I deserve. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, God my Saviour. Such prayers have their fulfilment in the finished work of Christ on the cross. But such is the beauty of the Lord. In the 16th century, Coverdale translation of the Bible, verse 4, is, is said that David's hope is to behold the fair beauty of the Lord, the fair beauty of the Lord. In Eugene Peterson's rendering of this text, I'm asking God for one thing, only one thing, to live with him in his house my whole life long. I'll contemplate his beauty. I'll study at his feet. That's the only quiet, secure place in a noisy world, the perfect getaway far above the buzz of traffic. Now, why do we need the beauty of the Lord? And the answer is because life can be ugly, and we know it. The context of this passage is in verse 5. The context is trouble, or a day of trouble, not just the buzz of traffic. I do like Eugene Peterson, but it's a bit Western. A bit safe. Nothing safe in David's life. 
Look at verse 5. For in the day of trouble, God will guide me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. So David says that God is beautiful in the day of trouble. You with me? He says in the day of trouble. David says the wicked are advancing, verse 2. Armies are besaging. War breaks out, verse 3. You might say, this is not me. But look down at verse 10, some domestic problems. Who doesn't know domestic problems? Verse 10, though my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. I have a home there in the Lord. The point being that David's hope in God is set in reality, in pain and suffering, not as a contradiction to pain and suffering, which I think is the way pleasure normally, we want to seek pleasure, avoid pain, so you reject one for the other. But there's something in the mystery of God for a follower of Jesus where you can call God beautiful even in the day of trouble. I love what Ernest Becker says, I think that taking life seriously means something such as this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the grotesque, of the rumbling of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it's phony or fake. Or Beekner, Presbyterian, a cheeky Presbyterian. I say that like there's another kind. Here is the world, beautiful and terrible things will happen. To simply close your eyes, to be optimistic, always look on the bright side of life, to ignore the problems, to be escapist, to have only wine at the end of the day as salve, to um, quote a movie, to stuff it, let's go bowling, is not what's going on here. It's not contradiction. Because David is gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, his head is up, not down. Whatever this is, it's not escape, not a coping mechanism. It is indeed triumph. Look at verse 3. Though an army besage me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I'll be confident. Verse 5, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. I think there are links here to Paul's more than conquerors through him who loved us in Romans chapter 8. I just wanted to see if you knew where it was. The Hebrew word for face is the same word for presence. To be face to face is to be present with somebody, to talk. This is the language of not just knowing about God, but being touched by his presence, to want to be touched by his presence, to have an experience of his presence, to seek the face of the Lord, is to want the presence of God. Sometimes in the Bible, when people seek his face, they see his holiness, like Isaiah, or his glory like Ezekiel, or his goodness like Moses. But here, David wants to seek God's beauty as he seeks his face, his presence. What is beauty? Beauty is pleasure in the perception. It is pleasure in the perception. Ordinarily, perception gives awareness. That is, there's information in the perception, ordinarily. Perception allows you to make a wise choice. You're walking down the street, you perceive a friend, you embrace them. But if you perceive an enemy, you avoid them. Or 
whatever it is you do when you see an enemy. In other words, usually there's information in the perception, but beauty is pleasure in the perception or delight. Awareness of the fact that the thing is beautiful. So you hear some music, some music, not all music, and you know it. You hear some things, not all things, and you experience pleasure in its beauty. I think we instinctively reach for beauty to calm ourselves. A little bit like David, although David turns not just to music, which is what many of us do, or looking at water or a garden. David says in verse 3, an army besage me, my heart will not fear, this only do I seek, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. You say, well, what place is there for the beauty of a garden then? Or music, or books. We'll come to that. Beauty is often associated with sight, and it pains me to say that this is true, with uh, looks. And I, I wrote that word looks down and thought, what does that even mean, looks, looks? But beauty comes in all the senses. You can see something beautiful, the way of a boat on water. You can hear something beautiful, poetry, a song, a bird, some birds. You can smell something beautiful, often attached to a memory. You can taste something beautiful. We live in Sydney, we know this to be true. You can touch something beautiful. These things are attractive. I'll never forget the Christmas that my sister, a very tactile person, uh, gave me these. Salad servers. I had to write that down. I had to Google this, by the way. Um, you know, I just thought they were useful for salad. <laughs> and she says to me, she gives them to me, she says, hold them. I said, why don't I hold them? Feel it. A bit like Jed Barter with knives, you West Wing fans. Feel it. It's beautiful. I was just hoping that would work. But beauty comes even beyond the senses, and we know this to be true. A beautiful act, a beautiful soul, a beautiful spirit. This is what is going on in that moment in Barbie, I saw both movies, by the way, one reluctantly. In that moment in Barbie, when Barbie looks at the older woman and says, you're so beautiful. And of course, we see, or we believe in a beautiful God whom we don't currently see. I know some of you find hospitals awful and ugly, and there might be reasons for it. But sometimes, just sometimes, and maybe I can say this from a place of relative health, sometimes I see hospitals as places of profound beauty. The care, the empathy, the honest hard work of people at the hospital, the hopefulness. The opposite of, of beauty is ugly. New atheists seek to make God out to be ugly. Richard Dawkins says, and I won't grace his quote on the screen, you have to listen, what makes my jaw drop, he writes, 
is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh, as the Lord. And even worse, that they should bossily try to force the same evil monster, whether fact or fiction, on the rest of us. Since David calls God beautiful, either David is mistaken and justifying ugliness, or Richard Dawkins is mistaken and misunderstanding ultimate beauty. I take the latter is true. And if you perceive God as ugly for whatever reason, then might I suggest you do something from today. Dig a little deeper. Uh, the well might seem dry, but I promise you the water is there. Or find someone who can show you something so ancient, so new. And I know some of you know this when you you know, you go to an art gallery and you see a piece of artwork and you don't like it, but you're with somebody who does. And they just show you things you've never seen before. Maybe this can happen with you and God. To perceive God as he really is, is pleasurable, it's delightful, it is beautiful, it's something you want to gaze on and can't stop, something excellent or attractive. Now, you might be buttressing against that, but I want to now briefly do three things. Firstly, I want to explore today's alternative. It's obvious. Today's alternative is to pursue beauty and pleasure as an alternative to Christian hope. Now, there's everything right about pursuing beauty and even pleasure. We are not Gnostics or not Eastern. We believe in a creator God. But to pursue these things as an alternative to Christian hope is idolatry in the Bible. Now, if God is beautiful and if we are made for God, then you can make the argument easily that this is why we seek beauty. It's the same reason that we, and not animals, it's the same reason we seek justice and we seek grace. We're mirroring God. But when you begin to wipe out the transcendent, what is above you, a God above you, which our society has been doing for 200 years, but has escalated enormously in the last 30, when you wipe out the transcendent above you, all you have left is the imminent, the books, the music, the garden, the relationship, what is around you. If that is the case, then hedonism, the mere pursuit of pleasure, is a legitimate option. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Lots of people will say, eat, drink, and be merry, and they'll leave off the second half, because they're not courageous enough I believe. But more than that, if you're living for the imminent, for now, you will begin to push the stuff of this world up. You will begin to lift it up, hoping to scratch a transcendent itch, hoping that these things will give us meaning because we need meaning, hoping that they will be it. And so St. Augustine said, I rushed headlong into these things of beauty which you have made. A thing of beauty, of course, is a sexual life. But St. Augustine rushed headlong into it. Jesus warns us in the parable of the sower that the seed that fell among thorns stands for those who hear, even this morning, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's concerns, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. And with so many concerns, so many riches, so much pleasure on offer, you can see why this is a genuine alternative to Christian hope, 
especially set against the invisibility of God, disappointment in life, and the future nature of resurrection hope, which seems so distant. So, we go for the books, the music, the food, the sex, the garden, the house, the holiday. Not hard to find, things of beauty. C.S. Lewis, bingo, is really helpful here in The Weight of Glory, a sermon he gave during World War II. He argues why these beauties and pleasures are not a legitimate alternative to the hope God has. He writes the books or the music or whatever in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing, desire. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshippers. The books, the music, sex, the relationships, the housing, the holidays, they don't satisfy. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune, a beautiful one we've not yet heard, news from a country we've not yet visited, picking up on Hebrews chapter 12 and resurrection hope. They point to the beauty of God. They point to Christian hope. They are good images of what we really desire, but they are not the thing itself. They break the hearts if we trust to them. That's today's alternative. Secondly, a trap for young players. Now, I don't have enough time for this, but see how we go. I think it's fair to say that plunging headlong into pleasure has always been a thing. The, from Genesis, right, from, from the beginning. The Greco-Roman world was full of pleasure-seeking during the time of Jesus in the early church. And Peter outlines what it looked like for many in that time, in that 1 Peter reading we read to you, or Mitzi read to you in a moment's time. In 1 Peter 4, verse 3, flip it over if you kept an outline in it. In verse 3, he says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in the imminent, living in debauchery, lust, uh, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. It's talking about the Greco-Roman world, and it's living for self. Is this the ugly search for the beautiful? Taking things that God has made and making them ultimate. It reminds me of Gollum in Lord of the Rings, you know, holding on to my precious. An idol which defigures his soul. Tolkien just smashes it there. But Christians live their lives not around the things of this life, but around following Jesus ahead of the future he has prepared for us. So in verse 4, Peter writes, you know, they're surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, so relax about them. You don't get to control them. I'll give an account. But you, he says... Since the end of all things is near, verse 7, since your hope is real, substantial, will come decisively in a moment in the future, it will be fulfilled. Since the end of all things is near, what, panic? Uh, be a hero? This is the apocalyptic Hollywood version of such things. No, since the end of all things is near, Peter writes, 
love each other deeply, serve each other with the strength God provides, offer hospitality without grumbling. You don't panic, you don't have to be a hero, you just have to be a follower of Jesus living the beautiful life that comes from a beautiful God. So what is the trap for young players? It's simple. Over the last 200 years, the measure of how you live a life is no longer ordered around some external rule or law or tradition or some family norm or around a God who exists externally to you for whom you have to order your inner self around an external God above you. But rather over the last 200 years, since Rousseau on, absolutely rocketing forward during the sexual revolution and peaking, I think, in the last 20 years, is ordering your life according to self, your inner life, trap for young players, so that who you are on the inside is now your true self. You hear it all the time. It comes in the phrase, you do you. And any way in which you identify yourself now is currently now the sacred. This is the sacred, and it cannot be touched. Spoiler alert, every Disney film made for the last 50 years is on this topic. Follow your inner dreams. And I do believe it's led to the current moral mess that we find ourselves in and is a trap for young players. Worth exploring, I don't have the time to do now, but this is not an easy book, uh, but even the first couple of chapters, if you can, it's just profound. If you want to pursue this further, Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self was to me a revelation, worth a read. Trap for young players. Third, I want to lastly offer an antidote. Now remember, this is not an antidote to beauty and pleasure. They don't need an antidote. They're not poison. We thank God for life and health and safety for power to work and leisure to, rec to rest, the books, the music, the garden, 100%. Rather, this is an antidote to beauty and pleasure as an alternative to Christian hope. When you make beauty and pleasure an idol rather than worshiping God. St. Augustine, too late have I loved you, O beauty so ancient and so new, too late have I loved you. Behold, you were within me while I was outside, it was there that I sought you, and as a deformed creature, rushed headlong into those things of beauty which you have made. It's never too late. So the first thing to do is see the trap, to name it. Jesus said you could be choked by life's concerns, life's riches, life's pleasures, to nominate the things that we could make idols above God as ultimate upon these things of beauty which you have made, even self, even the rise and triumph of the modern self, name it. The second thing to do is to name where the source and fount of all beauty, in fact, comes from, namely God himself, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Third is to see the beauty in the ugliness of the cross of Jesus Christ, which is what communion is about in a few moments' time. Jesus chose the bloody Roman cross. Jesus chose this ugly act to bring beauty to the world, to save the world. He had to get in under the grotesque, 
the rumble of panic underneath everything. He had to get in under the sin and death to lift it and us with him in resurrection. To borrow from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1, Greeks seek wisdom, Jews seek power, Australians look for beauty, but God chose the foolish things in the world to shame the wise, weak things in the world to shame the strong, and ugly things of the world to shame the beautiful, those who take pride in beauty. This is why the cross of Christ is the beauty of God. Gaze upon the cross as you take bread and wine in a few moments' time. He saved me. And then in Christ to reorder your lives, to love one another deeply, all that in 1 Peter 4. But it's also to reject disordered lives. We get things the wrong way around. We need to learn to love little things a little, like the stuff, the things, the books, the music. Moderate things moderately, like family and neighbours in need. Humans. And then ultimate things we need to love in ultimate ways, namely God himself. Instead of loving ultimate things, sorry, little things in ultimate ways, and ultimate things in little ways. Then, ordered to God, following Jesus, we'll be able to enjoy what God has made in its proper place, and then also gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to say with David, Psalm 27, verse 13, I remain confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living, wait for the Lord, be strong and take heart, wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we live in this world and no other, so we know pain and we know suffering and we know the storm. And yet we say that Christ alone is Lord even in the storm that you, O oh God, are beautiful. You are, O oh beauty, so ancient, and perhaps even today, so new. And so we choose him this morning, Christ, our cornerstone, in whose name we pray. Amen.